0: You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at Trashotron.com/Agony. I'm Rick Kleffel, and today I'm speaking with Kim Stanley Robinson. He's the author of the Mars trilogy, and his latest series about the politics and the science of global warming he began last year with Forty Signs of Rain, and continues with his new novel, Fifty Degrees Below. Welcome to the show, Stan. Thank you, Rick. Good to be here. Stan, what happens to the human body in an environment of 50 degrees below zero? Well, uh,
1: you would die. Uh, you need um, a good um, jacket, good clothing, good footwear, gloves for sure, something around your head, your ears. If you're well equipped and if you're uh, exercising, if you're, work, if you're working to walk or in any way keeping your blood flowing, you can uh, live and and operate pretty well at 50 below. But it takes that little that technological edge of having the proper equipment on.
0: Tell us a little bit about where on Earth we can find regions right now that are 50 degrees below zero.
1: Oh, well, I, I think typically at the poles or at very, very high altitude in the Himalayas. The um, Where I experienced it was at the South Pole. Uh, even elsewhere in Antarctica, it never got that cold while I was there because I was there at their... Midsummer, the sun never went down. and uh, Up on the polar plateau, it was 50 below from time to time, but mostly well, what we experienced down there was more like 20 below. So these are the only places
0: that experience it right now. Stan, tell us a little bit about global warming. This is the crux around which your new novels uh, work. One of the things that seems a bit counterintuitive is why does global warming seem to cause to us what is global cooling. Okay,
1: well it is counterintuitive and I'm glad uh, to have this opportunity to explain. Uh, Global warming is what it says. It's heating up the earth. Before the Industrial Revolution there were 280 parts per million of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere and now there's 380 and I just saw in the newspaper before coming over here that uh, it's been published in Science Magazine that they've done an ice coring in Antarctica at Dome C and they've got 650,000 years of good atmospheric records now, which is quite amazing, and the the carbon dioxide levels have never been as high as this in that last 650,000 years through ice ages, through warm periods between ice ages. It's never been this high, and not only that, but the usual rises in carbon dioxide during warm periods are are much slower than the ones that we've been in. Uh, This is about 100 times faster than it happens in during natural cycles. So it's pretty clearly human-caused, and I think all that is, is now agreed upon by such a, a huge majority of the scientific population that the, the people that remain are either stubborn or, or
0: being well paid to, to stick to the skeptical point of view. Tell us a little bit about the skeptical point of view. I'd like to talk a bit about the argument style, debunking as an argument technique. I just read Michael Crichton's State of Fear novel, Mm -hmm. which is a novel that's filled with data that is against global warming. So tell me, where does this kind of data come from? Tell us a little bit about how people can use and arrange facts to support their own point of view. Okay. Well, I I haven't read State of Fear, um, although I have read Crichton's testimony
1: to the Senate, so I have some sense of his methods. And debunking in general relies on uh, an understanding of science that is uh, at first too narrow and then uh, kind of too vague. The narrow part is that you claim that uh, science can only be reliable and trusted in its results or what we believe from it afterwards when it's been repeated in a laboratory it has to be falsifiable in this kind of classic Karl Popper way and it has to be something that you can do in a lab point to the results and then do it again in a lab and point to the same results and if not It's, quote, not science. Well, that doesn't work for astronomy. It doesn't work for geology. It doesn't work for any of the natural sciences that don't have the luxury of being able to isolate factors in a laboratory and repeat the experiments over and over again. You can't start the universe again. You can't imitate conditions at the center of the Earth. And so you have to work by indirection. Science often works indirectly and by induction and by a a kind of network of evidence that goes, you could call it the standard model, the physicists often do. By this network of evidence, you begin to make a case that is fairly persuasive, and most scientists are pretty conservative in how much they'll claim beyond what this network of evidence will will support. And and then when people question it, they'll say, "Well, but what about the entire network?" And then the the debunking of findings that seem to be anomalous; those anomalies often are anomalies. They They either haven't been explained yet or else they can be explained but we don't understand why or else they're irrelevant to the point that's being made. For instance, the debunkers will often say, well, geez, the stratosphere is getting cooler. This whole time we've got good temperature measurements uh, high in space and that shows that actually the Earth has been cooling. So we have to ignore these uh, results on the surface. Well, not at all. It's the results on the surface and in the the lower 10,000 feet of the atmosphere that really matter to us and to the weather. So that what's happening up in the stratosphere might be um, reflecting in a reverse way in, uh, what's going on down down lower. They just don't understand that finding, but it doesn't debunk the the bulk of the findings that are being happening that are that are being gathered everywhere else from the top of Mauna Kea down to the bottom of the Antarctic ice sheet. Those are pretty um, scientists would say compelling arguments, which I I find a nice word for it. To go back to your previous question, I never did get to why it would be cool and maybe we should go into that with global warming. Earth is heating up. The Earth's atmosphere is heating up, the oceans are slightly heating up as a result of this. And the carbon dioxide that's being put into the atmosphere is, by the way, also filling, uh, falling into the oceans so that the oceans are becoming more acidic, which is another serious problem. But uh, what the climatologists are finding is that as the atmosphere heats up and the poles begin to melt, as we see, um, there's a thing that happens with the Gulf Stream, where the Gulf Stream stalls because it's not salty enough to sink to the bottom of the ocean and begin its journey southward. So this warm water, and it's about a petawatt of energy per year, which is about 100 times as much as all humanity creates per year, is moved north in the Gulf Stream. All this heat would not be moved north in the Gulf Stream if it were to stall. And it did stall, apparently, at the, end, at the beginning of the Younger Dryas, which is this bitter little ice age that happened in the midst of the general warming about 10,000 years ago. So this is the mechanism by which Europe in particular, but also the eastern half of the United States, suddenly have much more severe, colder winters than they would have if the Gulf Stream was doing its usual thing. So the earth as a whole is warming up, but Europe and the eastern half of the United States would, if the Gulf Stream stalled, uh, suddenly have really, really cold winters.
0: Tell us a little bit about how do we know that we're not the climate change we're experiencing is not just natural climate change?
1: Well, this is a good question. Um there's partly the speed um, with which the carbon dioxide is is um, increasing in the atmosphere, as I say, faster than any natural cycle. As I understand it, and here I'm a little bit fuzzy myself, and we need the help of scientists on this to explain it, that you can identify w- carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, whether it was there because of the natural process or whether it's been burned in an internal combustion engine. There are chemical differences, and so you can actually identify the CO two that has been put there by humans, and then also it's just a, a matter of induction, and, and maybe there is some natural uh, cycle in which CO two is increasing in the atmosphere, but it was two hundred eighty parts per billion per million when the. Industrial Revolution began and now it's 380 parts per million and this is so much faster than the, any other rise. And then there's also the straightforward physics. The internal combustion engine burns gasoline and puts out into the, um, out of its tailpipe, some extra CO2. Where else would that CO2 go than into the air into which it's released? I mean, this is uh, almost irrefutable. The power plants and the cars and trucks that we rely on for electricity and for moving around this planet are burning uh, carbon and and releasing carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. It's, it's got nowhere else to go. It's, it's landing on the land, perhaps, but it's also hanging in the atmosphere and, drop as I said, dropping into the ocean, which is a new newly investigated problem. This hasn't really been publicized as much as the global warming per se, but as the oceans grow more acid, they might make it impossible for the smallest zooplankton to create their little calcium shells, very delicate, um, thin little shells that in a more acidic ocean might not be able to to last or they'd be too thin the creatures would die well they're at the bottom of a food chain and and essentially we're at the top of that food chain and you know how food chains work so The acidification of the ocean is something that the Royal Society recently pointed out, and I think it's why Tony Blair uh, kind of got religion on global warming uh, before the G8 meeting last summer. He was very concerned because, as the Royal Society told him, there are ways in which you can conceptualize in a sort of science fiction sense, drawing carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere. And, and these drawdown plans are being investigated all over the place to see if there, any of them are, are practical on an industrial scale. But the scientists investigated the a possibility of deacidifying the ocean by putting a ground-up limestone in it in a fairly straightforward chemical way, well, no matter how much we, uh, marble and limestone we put in, like all that's exposed in the entire uh, Great Britain, it still wouldn't be enough to make any difference whatsoever to the acidity of the ocean. So this is a problem we're creating that we can't fix.
0: Tell us a little bit about the efforts of mitigation
1: Well, the uh, mitigation, climate mitigation, there's a couple of uh, different ways of approaching that. Partly, it is mostly a matter of climate adaptation. What can we do in a warmer world uh, in order to try to adapt to it? And this oftentimes is code for let's not do anything at all because adapting would just mean what? Uh, Changing your crops and maybe trying to make habitat corridors so wildlife could move north or south as the case might be. I mean, adaptation, when you look at the conference proceedings from climate adaptation conferences, you often notice that they're almost content free in terms of actual suggestions of what to do. So the State Department's website on climate adaptation is a perfect example of this uh, content-free uh, excuse-for-doing-nothing kind of a approach. Mitigation is is a question of let's not put as much carbon into the atmosphere as we are now, a really rapid change to alternative methods of, of creating energy and of getting ourselves around the planet. And there's all kinds of work being done on that front, and some of it involves capturing the carbon from um, the burning of coal before you burn it, and then people are trying to liquefy CO2, recapture it, and then put it uh, oftentimes in the the most prominent tests so far down in emptied oil wells so that what oil is drawn out, liquid CO2 is pumped back in. It actually helps with the removal of the last portions of oil out of these uh, oil beds. And it also gets rid of that uh, frozen CO2, it puts it down there for what will surely be thousands and thousands of years. And that's long enough, I think, for uh, in my opinion, any mitigation scheme that gets carbon out of the atmosphere uh, rapidly, even if it were only for a couple hundred years, like for the life of a tree or something, it would still be a good enough to pursue because one hopes that in a couple hundred years we will have come up with even more powerful methods. So so I'm in favor of all these mitigation efforts being pursued at once in a kind of a you know, Manhattan project or... Um, uh, something really, truly uh, all-encompassing for a society like World War II, where the whole society says, for the sake of future generations, we have to make our project and the next stage of capitalist development of an undeveloped country, and the undeveloped country in this case would be sustainability itself. It has to be reconceptualized.
0: You were in Washington, D.C. recently. Tell me why you were there, what you were doing, and who you talked to.
1: Well... Uh, I went to DC mostly for a promotion for this uh, new book, 50 Degrees Below, but since I was there and I'm still writing the third volume that will complete this novel, um, I was visiting places that are in the books. I was chasing white-tailed deer in Rock Creek Park and uh, visiting the sites that my homeless characters uh, inhabit in the novels. And it really, everywhere I went in the city, I was thinking about it in a new way as some place that might end up in my book and therefore needed to be looked at almost like a detective or a reporter really paying attention. And I must say that's not my normal method. I usually work uh, out of my memory. And when I write about a place like Washington, D.C., since I lived there from 88 to 91, it's a good gap of time a decade or more so that what i do remember is rather striking and i can write it down and it's really the the thing that sticks out because it stuck with me for those 10 years so this time it felt a little bit different to wander around thinking oh that's interesting i could put that in the book or that's a beautiful thing i i saw the fdr memorial for the first time that was a beautiful thing a wonderful memorial to a great president. And I saw um, the Dalai Lama give a talk at the basketball arena, MCI arena, where the Wizards play. And that was also a beautiful experience. He was speaking to 16,000 people in the basketball arena, and it was entirely silent except for him and his translator. It was uh, almost surrealistic to look at 16,000 people in a basketball arena and hear no sound from this crowd. They were all just watching him and listening. And, and he was very down-to-earth, low-keyed, and it was much less like seeing a religious figure than than listening to kind of a fireside chat by FDR, for instance. Um, more personable than you might think of when you think of someone like the Dalai Lama. So that was also uh, instructive and, and a wonderful experience. Um, I visited some um, a scientist at the Pentagon, and I went over and gave a talk at the National Science Foundation, which is been supporting my work, or at least uh, receptive to my work, I should say, ever since I they sent me down to Antarctica ten years ago, and so and be, in between that, I was doing interviews and, and visiting bookstores, and taking a lot of long walks on the Mall. I realized that uh, for the first time that D.C. in its public area is rather small. You can easily hike from one side to another in, in an hour, and if you have time, you can wander all around there and. I I found it really inspirational, um very thought-provoking and I recommend it to every American to go there and and wander around on the mall. It's uh, it's it causes you to think in I think really good ways.
0: Your new novel involves a lot of uh reflections of current events. Uh at the end of 40 signs of rain, Washington is flooded. I'm wondering how you might have felt, must have felt when you saw Katrina, Hurricane Katrina. Flood New Orleans, another city built in a swamp.
1: Well, it was a creepy experience. And um, mostly I felt bad for uh, New Orleans. And I must say that my flooding of Washington DC, which uh, was a much less destructive event, the Potomac can flood. And the mall in Washington DC is only 10 feet above sea level. However, having said that, if you were to have a flood, um, the Potomac is there to drain it, and it is above sea level. So let um, say three or four days after my flood, D.C. was, you know, back out bedraggled in the sunlight and, and very destructive but not as horrific as what happened with Katrina in New Orleans. And I, in my novels, I do tend to treat these environmental disasters as things that liberate us from the bad institutions and bad habits that we had before so that there is this sense of celebration in my book that's a, um, that I think is not appropriate for what happened to our New Orleans at all. And, and maybe it wouldn't be even for DC. So, yeah, it, it it gave me pause and it taught me ways in which my, uh, my science fiction uh, envisioning of such a scenario in advance of it really happening, as always it misses some of the reality of the experience. You just can't really imagine reality until it happens and so this is a permanent burden and also an opportunity for science fiction writers.
0: Tell us a little bit about, we talked last time about the conversation of science fiction, of politics within science fiction, how science fiction writers will envision something and another one will respond and you're actually part of that conversation right now with respect to uh, global warming. Tell me a little bit about how it feels to do that and how you see this conversation unfolding, The how the fiction plays into this.
1: Well, the fiction would be, I think, have to be compared to scenarios in climatology where you take the, especially for science fiction, you take the current situation right now as you understand it. and that, that last phrase is crucial, and then you extrapolate from that just a few years into the future and say, well, if these are the current conditions, then we are likely to reach these future conditions, and that's worth describing in detail so that we can decide whether we want to go there or not. So this is the traditional kind of warning or exhortatory uh, value of science fiction. It's telling us to try some things and telling us to avoid other things by running scenarios that imagined what it would be like, and as I said before, that, that can always has to be a little inaccurate, but it's worth trying as an exercise to give us some notion of what we want to do in the current uh, situation. So as far as global warming goes, I think we... We have a hard time imagining what a world that is uh, 5 degrees Fahrenheit warmer on average would be like. And that's not really what this particular novel of mine is about, because what I'm trying to imagine is what the transition would be like. When would we realize that it was definitely happening, and then what could we do about it? In other words, by the time we're sure that global warming is having a big impact... Um, at that point, will there be anything that we can do? And and it comes down to mitigation or adaptation. At that point, you can't turn back the clock. So I envision it one way. Other writers might envision it another way. I mean, this Crichton book uh, is making the claim that it's not happening at all and it won't be serious. And as far as I can tell from reading the reviews, he has environmentalists as being uh, incredibly competent and uh, evil uh, conspirators to create catastrophes to make it look like what their claims are are uh, making are real. And, and that strikes me as a, a very unrealistic portrait of the way people behave. I, I guess I would I would want people to compare science fiction visions of the near future to their sense of the reality principle. And that's what makes it either good art or bad. Could this happen? Does it fit with your notion of the reality that you see with your own eyes or not? And if not, If it's some kind of thriller in which at some point you have to really suspend disbelief and say, okay, well, I'm reading a thriller, and so people behave unlike they do in the real world, and somehow that's still entertaining, to me, that's not really what novels are all about. One wants the reality principle to be pressed hard against these novels all the way through, even if they're science fiction, and say, well, you know, from my understanding of the way the world works, that just could never happen that way. And at that point, that book begins to be a failure. On the other hand, if at every point you say, "Yeah, that's probably the way it would turn out," if I if I give them that one development, then I can see how all the rest of it logically follows. Then that's what's traditionally
0: been defined as good science fiction. One of the things that's really impressive about your novels, both these uh, novels, is the degree of reality that the characters bring. They behave; they do behave absolutely realistically. It's very low key, and it's very persuasive and involving. And one of your characters, uh, Frank Vanderwall, has undergone a couple of really interesting developments in your new novel. In the first place, he does become homeless himself. Yet, though he's highly competent and fairly well recompensed, and it made me think of how school teachers often can't afford to live where they teach. And I'm wondering if you'd want to comment on the economic implications of what you're writing about.
1: My character, Frank, is um, an extremist, a scientist who would like to uh, follow the findings that he is uh, reading about in sociobiology and apply them to his own behavior in, I would say, too strict of a manner so that you end up with a kind of comedy of extremism. And so his plight is not as severe as, as you pointed out. He's well recompensed. And if he really wanted to, he could find a place to live, pay the high rent, suffer the... The bad lodging for high rent syndrome, which would happen, you know, in the D.C. area anyway, but especially after a flood destroyed a whole bunch of housing and brought a lot of people to to see the place. So that um, it's not his, his problem is somewhat self-imposed and part of an experiment, you might say, that he's running in in how to live um, a more uh, healthy and happy life. And uh, I've, I've enjoyed writing his story tremendously because it makes me laugh. Uh, But the homeless people that he hangs out with, that's a whole different thing. And we live in an economy where uh, if uh, unemployment were to drop below about 5%, then it would make um, the stock market uneasy because it creates what they call wage pressure. We're living in an economy that requires unemployment. That if if there were full employment, then owners and employers would have to compete for labor by offering higher wages and better benefits. And so uh, the minimum wage would rise by a kind of straightforward supply and demand. This is uh, uh, straightforward and known to all, but the thing is that business owners don't want the bottom wages to be higher and fight it whenever legislation is ever uh, introduced to try to make them higher by legislation. But in terms of the so-called free market, which is never free, uh, and it's just uh, as, as legislated and regulated as any other part of life. In that so-called free market, um, wages would rise if there was nearly zero unemployment because there would be competition for laborers. But there isn't because we have a permanent pool of unemployed. And these people are immiserated, as they say in sociology. They live miserable lives. So they un- the uncertainty in their lives as to where they're going to spend the night and also how they're going to get their health care. Which is maybe the crucial factor, because you can live outdoors. We were, we were, we did for a million years. Um, you can find shelter and you can maybe uh, get hold of food, but medical care is specialized and expensive—a kind of modern introduction, which I'm very much in favor of. So, uh, the, I write about this in an attempt to point out that we live in an economic system that is fundamentally in unjust. That we are taught values of democracy and justice, social justice, but. This is uh, sort of like Sunday school lessons, forgotten when you leave the church. Um, the daily economic system that we live in has a brutality at the edges, and for those who are not winners in the system, that is not often recognized. And, you know, novels are meant to tell their story too sometimes. And I feel confident about this by a kind of accident because I myself am a prosperous, white, middle class, suburban American, kind of a, a Mr. Mom in a small town. But uh, I happen to play Frisbee golf at a park where there is a group of homeless people. That, uh, and I've been playing Frisbee golf there, and they've been hanging out there for about seven years. So I know these people pretty well on a superficial level, but um, daily contact for seven years will teach you a lot of things about even more than the superficial exchanges that we always have that are always the same. You know, who's winning? Who's winning? We we hear that every time we run by them and make the same answers every time. But over seven years, you begin to see the moments, the moments when they're being rousted by a SWAT team, the moments when they're making uh, exchanges for drugs, food, or sex. I mean, there's you see a lot more over seven years than you would just in a casual passing by of a homeless person on the street. So um, I felt a certain confidence, a a certain knowledge base when I was writing these scenes that I wouldn't have otherwise felt because I live as protected an existence as any other uh, middle-class person. But these folks are are real and they're outwear and and they're living in a system that doesn't really give them the opportunity to work.
0: Tell us a little bit about what you call the freegan lifestyle. Are any of these people that you know freegans? Not the ones that I pass by in the park, and it it would be good if they
1: were, because freegans, as I understand it, are young people disenfranchised in the system and and angry and feeling like they are going to check out of the um, ordinary American dream lifestyle and begin to live off the streets, be homeless people, but using... um, Uh, sort of information technology of cell phones and of their own wit to find the empty structures in every city that are there to be lived in if you want to break into them and slip into them and use them. And then they also, and I'm told this by the people who do it, um, who are sort of third party. These are I don't have direct experience of freegans, but I've been told that they essentially find their food out of dumpsters of restaurants and and I notice now that dumpsters for restaurants are now being locked on a regular basis, not because the d- restaurants want to deny homeless people food so much as they, they have legal liability problems. So it's, a, it's once again liability that causes this kind of uh, excess security. But in any case, at this point, freegans are finding free food, finding free shelter, and living outside the um, monetary or economic system that, we, that we
0: all, most of us are in. I want to step back and talk about another interesting topic that you brought up in 50 Degrees Below is the reinsurance industry. Could you describe that to us and how you foresee it becoming a force for change?
1: The reinsurance industry are simply those big insurance companies that insure other insurance companies so that when the big insurance companies that insure businesses and individuals take a hit from one of these big disasters, natural disasters or man-made disasters, then they themselves go to their own insurance companies to try to mitigate the financial losses. And so Um, there's a certain sense in which these reinsurance companies are left holding the short end of the stick. They are the last recourse before government aid Uh, And they themselves are in a business in which they want to charge the right premiums so that they can make payouts and they can pay insurance when they need to, but they also make money. So they have natural catastrophe experts, and they are extremely concerned about global warming. They've become convinced that it's real and that it's going to impact their industry so heavily that they all might go bankrupt, at which point it's back to government. So there's only um there's four reinsurance companies that uh, cover more than half of all the reinsurance in the entire world. And um there's Swiss Re and Munich Re and General Electric and and another one and they are concerned. And they are big big players. They're they're not maybe almost as big as the oil companies, but they're on the opposite side of the argument than most of the oil companies in that they want to see a change in our Um, carbon burning as quickly as possible just for their own business interests. And I think they're big enough players that what they say carries weight in the rest of the financial world. It carries weight on Wall Street. It carries weight even perhaps with the Wall Street Journal, although I think they're one of those kind of skeptics that will kind of rather go down with the ship than ever ever admit that they were wrong about this. But uh, it's the reinsurance companies that matter, I think, even more than the Wall Street Journal.
0: Tell us a little bit about something, you mentioned it briefly, and Crichton talks about it extensively, called the Precautionary Principle. Tell us what it is, how it works, what it means.
1: Well, the Precautionary Principle is, I think, something straightforward out of of insurance thinking, really, is that you want to look forward to possibilities that, if they were to happen, would be so disastrous that you couldn't really recover from them, and they'd be damaging to civilization or in the individual level to the individual. And so uh, if those are possibilities, you want to take precautions against those, even if they're not certainties. So that if you were in a situation and said, well, 20% of the time, you know, when I cross this railroad track without looking both ways, I'm going to get run over by a train. It's only a 20 cent percent Possibility, but um, because of the precautionary principle, you say I'm never going to cross those, those train tracks without looking both ways because that the possibility of disaster is is the risk is low. But the consequences are high. The stakes are high and the consequences are bad. So this has been applied to global warming, and it's been said that you, know, you can't be sure how hot it's going to get in a century from now. Could be two degrees Fahrenheit, could be 11 degrees Fahrenheit, that's a pretty big spread. But enough part of that spread is bad enough for all of the creatures on Earth, the entire biosphere, that we need to take precautions ahead of time. And so this is really how the European Union has handled it, and it's becoming a, a fairly um, well-known term in in environmentalist circles, the precautionary principle. Uh, and it's being argued against by by people who really don't want to Um, lose any profits. And right now, they're they're just concerned with the next quarter's profit statement and how much you're going to have to pay out in infrastructure, change out costs if you really take global warming seriously. So the precautionary principle is attacked on principle. And, um, in fact, the U.S. government has often gone to climate treaty conferences with the express um, requirement that they will attend the conference, but only if the precautionary principle is not even brought up as a word.
0: One of the things that's interesting is the history of interventions, and you bring up something, uh, mentioned something about Shakespeare's birds.
1: Well, there is a a strange story in that there was, and I don't, don't know it in detail, but there is a man who loved Shakespeare so much that he decided it would be a cool thing to introduce every bird species named in Shakespeare to North America. And so he traveled to England several times. This is the late 19th century, obviously a wealthy eccentric and um, put the birds in cages, brought them to North America in groups big enough to be breeding colonies and released them. And I'm not sure exactly how many of those have survived or what his impact was beyond this one point, is that he's the one who introduced starlings to North America. And apparently the East Coast suffers these enormous starling almost infestations, that it's a, a case of invasive biology where somebody actually did it on purpose, not realizing how... Badly, the ecological balance could be thrown off by a, an exotic that happens to be a um, um, better invader than the locals are.
0: One thing you talk about a bit, and you mentioned this earlier, was FDR's invention, interventions. Tell us a little bit about what you see happening now, what you see as required in the future, and what a little bit of the past, too.
1: Well, FDR is an interesting example because when he became president, we really um, were in a crisis moment. I mean, bad things had already happened. Uh, The Great Depression was already three or four years old, and people were really suffering. And so uh, it was an interesting point in history. Uh, Could the situation be rescued from a point that low, or were, were we just going to fall into anarchy? And so this was a test of how much government could do if the people were to uh, give it their trust and say, look, this is our government and we want our government to act in our interests and not in the interests of a narrow, powerful group of of, um, owners of capital. And so that that worked pretty well. I mean, it is a mixed story, and yet, nevertheless, the New Deal was a tremendous uh, improvement for the ordinary American citizen. And it was done by rallying the whole country around the idea that this was a necessary national effort. Now I don't know if, um, if I think it has some lessons for us now, and they're only analogies, and historical analogies are always dangerous because the current moment is never like any moment in the past, not alike enough that you can reliably use the past as a guide. Nevertheless, sometimes these analogies are useful, and I think that if we come to the realization that the biosphere itself is in danger of a kind of mass extinction event, which is really what the scientists are telling us, that this endangers not just, um, you know, the, quote, environment, uh, but uh, us and our and our offspring. And this is where I think people get very concerned. is about their kids and how, what's life going to be like for our children and our children's childrens, and the sense of the future generations gets stronger and stronger the more you focus in on the immediate impact on your own kids and realize that that's always going to be true. People are always going to be more concerned about the fate of their children than they are of their own fate. And so at some point it may come to pass that people realize that we need to change our power systems and our transport systems and our lifestyle habits in the United States. In a, th- a complex of three ac- um, various kinds of activities that are all adding too much carbon to the atmosphere too fast, and that this is going to be costly uh, to the society at large, to the businesses, to the individuals. It's going to require some changes in our mental habits, and whether that could happen. And this is one of the this is one of those scenarios that I'm trying to tell in this current novel, is is the the change the, the when we went from our current society and the attitudes that we have now to a radically uh, changed set of social habits. And so this this is science fiction. This is really what science fiction is for. It's just that I'm applying it specifically to the the current problem that we're facing.
0: You're listening to Rick Kleffel, The Agony Column Podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at Trashotron.comslash agony.